Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. This episode includes frank graphic descriptions by law enforcement investigators of violence, including details of crime scenes and specific fatal injuries. Listener discretion is strongly advised. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. My name is James Walner. This is episode three of the Mandan Murders. If you've not listened to episodes one and two, you'll want to start there. A mass murderer remains on the run. I remember one of my first thought is, is that how are we going to ID this guy? Four people were found dead inside a property management company. I thought the pickup looked familiar. I was going to do it that night, come and take pictures of his, his truck that night. You know, my first thoughts were like, how am I going to do this? And then from there, we got to figure, okay, where does he go from here? In this episode, we will follow along with law enforcement as they track down a killer. But before that, I want to talk for a moment about Adam. Adam Fuhrer. Adam was one of the four murdered that morning at RJR, and although he lay there in a pool of blood just a few yards from Robert... Adam was the last of the four to be discovered. This was the fault of no one, because while paramedics tended to Robert, and while responding cops moved throughout the big shop at RJR, Adam was hidden out of sight, obscured behind a workbench in a corner area of the building. He was right there the whole time, and yet unseen, off to the side. And really, if you followed this crime from day one, as I have, it feels a little bit like Adam has been partially hidden from this story ever since April 1st, 2019. At least from the view of the media and what the community knows about all this, Adam is still sort of off to the side. He's referred to as the fourth body, or the fourth victim. He's that other one. All I have ever been able to learn about him came from his obituary and from a couple of photos I've seen. A 42-year young man with a full head of dark hair, a beard, and a kind smile. The kind of guy that wears jeans and sweatshirts, like camping and fishing, working on cars, and drinking a cold beer. I don't feel Adam was purposely overlooked by the media exactly. He's just been a little elusive to us. It's just been somehow, how should I say this? easier, maybe, to get a grip on and wrap up the words and lives of Robert and Bill and Lois. They sort of roll off the tongue and pen and page somehow. While Adam is the other one, they are Robert Faulkner, co-owner of RJR. They are Bill and Lois, or the Cobbs. The young man named Adam, his part, his personality, and his life, it's a bit more difficult. And it turns out it just might be that Adam would have wanted it to be this way. Difficult to pry into who he was. Adam was a private person. I learned this yesterday when I finally had the opportunity to meet his widow, Melissa. Yes, this was just yesterday, at least at the time of this recording, which might explain to you why we did not hear from Adam's family last time when we met the daughters of Robert and Bill and Lois. Setting up interviews with people who have experienced this type of crushing and monumental senseless and sudden loss 
It's sensitive stuff, and it deserves time and respect. It happens when it happens, when they are ready, and at least in my world, only when they are ready. Yesterday, Adam Fuhrer's widow, Melissa, was ready. My name is Melissa Fuhrer, and I live in Bismarck with my two sons, or I should say with Adam's and my son's. James, who works for RJR, and Jared. On the day when everything changed, Adam's sons, James and Jared, were 15 and 13 years old. It was a Monday, a school day. I had just dropped them off at school and went back to... My usual route is the route here on Memorial Highway. And like for so many others on that morning, the day started to change when her phone rang. It was my mother-in-law, and she asked me the question. She asked me, she goes, have you heard from Adam? And I said, as a matter of fact, no, I haven't. And because I was, I had tried to call him that morning or whatever because there was something I wanted to ask him, and he never called back, and that's just kind of unusual for him not to answer. She goes, something's happened at RJR, but I don't know what yet. And I was like, well, I'm going to be on my way over that way. And we went over there, and of course, they had that all blocked off. I was just beside myself. I had talked to my sister-in-law, Natasha, and she had she had left work or whatever, and she had headed down there. She just, yeah, she, and then she called me, and she's like, she goes, nobody, nobody's talking, nobody can say anything. And I pretty much... I didn't want to leave there until somebody actually talked to me. That was my mindset at that time. I felt like nobody was saying anything to me, and now I understand they couldn't say anything, you know, until they were done with their investigation. Like everyone else, Melissa and her mother-in-law waited and waited and waited. My mother-in-law made me leave to go get something to eat. I says, I'm not hungry. She's like, you're going to eat something, even if it's just a bite of something. And I was like, okay. And so we went, and I just had that feeling in the pit of my stomach. I was like I said, you know, because we still, you know, couldn't get a hold of them. At some point, just like the other families, Melissa was asked to come down to Mandan PD. They were ready to tell them something. I called my sister-in-law, and I says, you need to come down here. I says, you need to, even even if you don't want to, I says, you need to come down here. And I have my son, Jared, with me. And we sat there, locked myself in the bathroom. I was like, I didn't even want to deal with anybody, you know. I was so, like, I didn't know what to, my mind was racing. I didn't, you know, it's like all kinds of things were going through my mind. James wanted to go home. He just knew himself, I think. He just knew. And so Jared came with me to the police station, and then they came in, and they said that they could identify, they identified who was, you know. They said, they, when they said Adam, I looked over at my son, and his face was so, like, just pale white. You know, my first thoughts were, like, how am I going to do this? 
We will be hearing again from Melissa in later episodes when we learn more about who Adam was, at least as much as we're able to learn about him. Because as I said, maybe there's some other reason that Adam is a bit on our periphery. He has been an elusive character for me, and now, as I start to learn more about him, finally, I'm starting to get the sense that maybe Adam would have gotten a kick out of this, my quest to get to know him. Maybe Adam, like me, was an outsider looking in, a private person watching from the corners and from the fringes. Suddenly, it seems entirely possible that this is the way things are sort of supposed to be. Adam being elusive and a little bit mysterious. For those of you familiar with the movie To Kill a Mockingbird, Scout and Atticus were probably right. It might not be the kindest thing in the world to shine an intense spotlight down on people like Boo Radley, or in this case, Adam Fuhrer. Maybe, for the most part, we should leave them be. And with that, for the time being anyway, and until we talk to Melissa again later in the series, let's dim the spotlight on Adam a couple notches, and let's return instead to the morning of April 1st, 2019, when Mandan PD were faced with one of the biggest and most urgent challenges to find and to stop a killer. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. The shock of the quadruple murders in Mandan on April 1st, 2019 held a paralyzing grip over the city. Four people dead and a killer or killers at large. Questions all around town. Who was this person or persons? Where were they? Who were they? Would they kill again? And if so, when? And while that fear lingered and hovered all around the city, perhaps those in town who carried the heaviest dose of anxiety those first few days were the people assigned to keep us safe in the first place, law enforcement. I was really worried about that. Every time I went home, I'm just thinking, we don't know who this guy is. He's still out in the public um, somewhere. I was, I was stressing over that. This is Captain Pat Haug again of the Mandan Police Department. We heard from him in episode two. In 2019, he was a lieutenant and one of the first investigators to respond. And it wasn't something anyone could be fully prepared for. I have been on a lot of death investigations throughout my career, but nothing like this. Lieutenant Haug and his team needed to find the person or persons responsible for this horrific act. And to do so, they were about to embark on perhaps one of the oldest investigatory methods known. It goes by many names and it's been around forever. Most often, it is described as following the trail, connecting the dots, following the lead, tracking. As the famous fictional character Sherlock Holmes might have said over a hundred years ago, it is an elementary idea, pure logic. The logic goes like this. Whoever did this, they were here, inside RJR. They were here, they did all this, and then they left. 
What we need to do is to find them, and to find them, we need to follow whatever trail they may have left behind. In Lieutenant Haug's case, he wouldn't do it exactly like Sherlock Holmes, not with bloodhounds or a magnifying glass. In 2019, the tool he would use was video, security cameras and surveillance video. And he didn't have to go at it alone. He got help, a lot of help, from the North Dakota Bureau of Criminal Investigations, or BCI. In fact, before it was said and done, at least eight BCI agents were on the scene at RJR that day. They brought in a supervisory agent from Jamestown. That would have been Arnie Rummel. Joe Aarons was the lead investigator for the Bureau of Criminal Investigation. The Bureau is able to do things that I can't do for my department. One is I can't assign an investigator to one case for a year or two years straight and not give him any other cases. I don't have that many investigators. You know, I, I had five investigators plus myself. That's a, that, that's a heavy burden on a small department where BCI was a, was able to let Joe Aarons just run with this case. That helps bring some calm, I guess, to the initial chaos that you see. My first initial thought when I got the call from the chief agent was, well, with four people dead in, a, in one building like that, carbon monoxide. This is Joe Aarons, who was the lead BCI investigator on the case. Once Agent Aarons arrived, Pat Howe gave him a walkthrough of RJR. They didn't have a search warrant quite yet, but Jackie Faulkner, Robert's wife, who was outside in the parking lot, had given them permission to go into the building again. We got there and walked into the building with Pat Haug right off to the left when I walked in, um, in the shop. We had walked in through the shop. Uh, Robert Faulkner was lying deceased on the floor. And really the first thing that caught my eye was that there was a yellow substance all over the floor, which just... I not used to seeing that, which then was later just explained to be broken eggs because Robert brought in eggs for his coworkers. Robert raised chickens and then brought eggs in on Monday mornings. Robert had a lot of blood around him. There were some other debris laying there. There was a clipboard, looked like some spilled coffee on the floor, um, blood on his chest. He was lying face up, so blood on the front of his body. On his face, there was a substantial amount of blood. Um, and then we walked over. So from there, you couldn't see Adam, even though he was also deceased in the shop, but he was behind a workbench. So you, from there, you couldn't see him. So Pat walked us over to where Adam Fuhr was laying on the floor and Adam was also lying face up. Um, Adam had a substantial pool of blood and he also had blood that had kind of coagulated already on his chin. So it, when you've seen that before, you know that he was more than likely lying face down in that pool of blood had been rolled over. You know, we, at this point, we hadn't examined any of the bodies, so we couldn't tell you what kind of injuries they had. They explained then that there's two more deceased in the office area. We walked in um, to the office that is shared by um, Robert Fockler and William Cobb, and William was laying face up also. His shirt was opened up so we could see that he had numerous stab wounds. Um, his whole chest was covered in stab wounds. Noticed a chair lying on the, f that had been tipped over that was sitting near his body and a fire extinguisher lying on the floor. Um, and a cap. We didn't know what all, the extent of all of his injuries and then obviously a lot on his chest. Um, 
walked out of that office and just off of that office is two bathrooms and one of the bathrooms Lois was lying on the floor face up also partially in the bathroom partially out into an office area that had some cubicles um walked over there Lois had there was a lot of blood in the bathroom and there's a floor drain in the bathroom too um there was blood that had been running from her body to the floor there was also some decent pooling of blood outside of the office or outside not the office the bathroom um where it appeared that Lois had obviously been bleeding substantially too before she got into the bathroom. Um, her glasses were lying outside of the bathroom, her eyeglasses. And you could see immediately when you looked at Lois, just to, at the extent that there were some deep cuts on her, the sides of her neck. Um, cause you, you could see those very clearly. We just wanted to see what we were going to be dealing with. And then we exited the building and just waited outside until a search warrant was obtained. And one of the very first things they did was take note of several security cameras at RJR. There were a few outdoors around the building and two security cameras inside the building. One of the outdoor cameras overlooked the employee parking lot with a view of the employee entrance door. Indoors, one of the two cameras overlooked a large portion of the shop, although not all of it. The other indoor camera overlooked the front reception area. Like any team, the members of BCI and Mandan PD had different roles. Some agents focused on the victims, their bodies, their injuries. Can we see how they died? What clues are there about what exactly happened here? Are there defensive wounds, signs of a struggle? Other agents focused on the more immediate question, who killed these people and can we figure that out ASAP? And they didn't waste any time. That very morning, right there at RJR, as soon as they had the search warrant in hand, they began viewing RJR's security video. And this is what they discovered. At 6.30 a.m., Bill and Lois Cobb are seen arriving at work. They're captured on the outdoor video camera facing the parking lot. There they stand together near the employee side door. They're sharing a cigarette. Lois wears dark pants and a dark sweatshirt, and Bill Cobb, blue jeans, a maroon-colored sweatshirt, and a baseball cap. The camera is mounted quite high on the building, looking down. In the video, the building is seen on the left, the parking lot in the middle, and to the right, out in the darkness beyond, can be seen a row of trees. The BCI agents watch as Bill Cobb walks out of view of the parking lot camera while Lois stays put and continues to smoke her cigarette. Bill is on his way to enter the building through the front entrance where he's soon captured on the indoor video camera in the front reception area. So Bill enters, locks the front door behind him because after all, it's not time to open the business to the public yet. Then Bill walks out of the picture into the office area, where assumingly he is turning on all the lights in the office and in the shop. And sure enough, a moment later, back outside on the parking lot camera, where Lois Cobb is still standing, Bill can be seen again when he opens the employee side door from the inside and returns outdoors where he walks over to Lois. He hands her the keys to the building. Then he walks off camera for a short moment towards where it's assumed that his white Dodge pickup is parked. While he is out of the picture for a moment, Lois stands there smoking, swaying a bit back and forth. <laughs> 
At one point, she turns and looks towards the tree row behind her. Then she looks up as if she's gazing or studying or perhaps appreciating the stars above. At 6.34 a.m., Lois walks to the employee door and enters the shop. Just a second later, Bill Cobb re-enters the video and he too enters the building. Due to the placement of these indoor cameras at RJR, these are the last images of Bill and Lois. So the BCI agents sit there and continue to watch the security video. At this point, they know that the side door was likely unlocked and Lois and Bill were inside. And the time? 6.34. At first, not a lot happens after that. Out on the parking lot video, there is nothing. One minute later, still nothing. Nobody. Two minutes later, 6.36 a.m., still nothing. 637, 638, 39, 40, 641 a.m., seven minutes after the cobs had walked inside. Still nothing. And then it happens. At 642 on the video, the BCI agents jump to attention. This is the moment when Bill and Lois Cobb are no longer alone, no longer the only people on the grounds at RJR Maintenance and Management in Mandan. Coming from the direction of that row of trees back there in the dark, appears a person walking towards the employee door. They are wearing dark shoes, dark pants, dark gloves, and a bright or blaze orange-colored hooded sweatshirt, the color of orange that hunters wear. And aside from some narrow slits for his eyes, He's covered up his head completely with a matching blaze orange ski mask. Here is Mandan's Pat Haug again. I remember one of my first thought is, is that how are we going to ID this guy? He's fully covered. Also, dangling from his gloved right hand is some kind of wire. Joe Ahrens. It was creepy and um, I was somewhat surprised. He approaches the door where he stops, looks down, wipes off his shoes on the doormat. Then he approaches the door. Checks the door, opens up, kind of looks in. Hesitates for a moment. And, and it's almost like he, when he opens the door, it's almost like, okay, here we go. And then, as if he's made up his mind. To me, it looks like that he almost takes like a deep breath. All right, here I'm going. He opens the door and disappears inside and out of frame. Actually, in my mind, I had believed that when we were processing that scene, one of the things I had always thought, and I told everyone, I said, leave the video alone. When our agent from Williston gets here, he'll, he'll deal with it, so let's just leave it. But my feeling was the whole time is that once he gets here and he pulls up this video and shows us what we're looking for, we're going to know who did this because it's either going to be 
an employee, an ex-employee, or a family member to one of these. I I truly believe that we were going to know who did this. And so when we saw this video of this masked individual, it was almost like a gut punch there for it. I mean, it was just, okay, but now we got to move on and we we, we need to figure this out. Pat Haug again. So we obviously saw um, the individual come into the building, but there was some stuff we didn't see. In fact, ultimately, there was a lot they didn't see. Due to the placement of the two interior cameras, none of the four slayings were captured on video. That one camera in the shop faced the far end in the opposite direction from where Robert and Adam were slain. And because of its positioning, the employee side door entrance was out of view. What they did see was this. A full five minutes after the man in orange entered the building, he exited again. He's seen in the parking lot and he heads off screen towards the area where the cops Dodge pickup would have been. The time is 6.46. Just a minute later, 6.47, the man in orange returns into the frame of the parking lot video and re-enters the door into RJR. He appears to be in a hurry, moving quickly. Then, indoors, for the next two minutes between 6.47 and 6.49, the man in orange can be seen moving inside of the shop area. Moments later, he's seen walking from left to right between a row of vehicles, as if he has circled the entire perimeter of the shop. A moment later, on the outdoor camera overlooking the parking lot, we see the door open, and the man peeks his orange-clad head out the door and appears to scan the parking lot, as if he's looking for someone, or waiting for someone. He closes the door and disappears back inside the building. 6.49, two minutes later, he's seen again on the video inside the shop. He walks from right to left and out of frame, and then back again towards the employee door. This time he's carrying a small rug. Then nothing happens for a full seven minutes. The man in orange does not leave nor do we see him in the interior shop, but he's in there somewhere. At 6.56, an RJR vehicle appears pulling into the lot. It's a small service van, and it parks at the far end of the parking lot. A moment later, Adam Fuhrer exits the car and starts walking towards the side door. He's carrying a coffee mug and a clipboard, and on top of the clipboard is his cell phone. He walks to the side door, and because his hands are both occupied with what he's carrying, he turns and sort of backs into the door. He's about to push it open and enter the RJR building like he's done so many times before. This is the last image of Adam Fuhrer.
four minutes after Adam went inside, another vehicle enters the parking lot. Robert Faulkner, pulling in in a dark pickup truck. And exits the truck. He's holding a coffee mug in one hand and a plastic bag in the other. He's wearing blue jeans, a maroon-colored RJR sweatshirt, and a baseball hat with sunglasses resting on the visor. He walks up to the door, grabs the door handle, and steps inside the building he owns, RJR. This is the last image of Robert Faulkner. Two minutes later, outside on the parking lot camera, the man in orange is seen leaving the building. He walks out of frame towards where Bill Cobb's pickup was parked. By midday, the investigation was in full swing, with a search warrant in hand, several BCI agents, Mandan PD, and others on the job. While some worked indoors on the forensics and examining the bodies and the building, others were tasked with tracking the suspect, that masked man in orange. Here is lead BCI agent Joe Ahrens again. Partially because we kind of had a good starting point for that, for trying to track our suspect because we know our suspect took Bill Cobb's pickup and drove it to Indigo Signs on the strip. So we know that from there, our suspect, that's a good starting point. So during all of this, an employee from McDonald's, which is down the road, probably three quarters of a mile, notifies law enforcement that one of their employees had observed something suspicious So they sent two patrol officers over to McDonald's to talk to the employee. In fact, the two officers were John Henry and Garrett Stepp. And if you recognize those names, it's because Henry and Stepp were two of three patrolmen who responded to RJR that morning. Officer Henry discovered the cobs in the office area and Adam Fuhrer. Yes, by mid-morning, these patrolmen were back out on patrol. Apparently, that is the life of a patrolman, It doesn't matter if you just witness the most horrific mass murder of your law enforcement career. You need to get back out there and write speeding tickets or respond to everyday calls. Or in this case, drive up to McDonald's to talk to an employee named Angela Davis. And that is exactly what they did. 
Angela's job duties at McDonald's included running food out to the drive through customers who had to wait for an order. After one of these runs that morning, she took her break and stayed outside to smoke a cigarette. Then, from the direction of a neighboring business named Big O Tires, she watched as a man in dark clothing walked towards McDonald's. When he arrived, he didn't go inside for breakfast or coffee. He didn't go inside at all. Instead, he walked to a pickup truck already parked there. And what jumped out to Angela most? This guy was wearing a ski mask. Here is John Henry again, who was a patrolman at the time. That call was actually holding once we went back to the patrol. Um, so Officer Step and I went to McDonald's, talking to the uh, management there and the lady who actually saw it. Here is Mandan's Pat Haug again. She describes something similar, you know, as far as wearing a ski mask and stuff, and that it was kind of a warmer morning. She explained that a male was wearing some just odd clothing. It just kind of sticks out to her. And, and we still haven't completely identified that this is our suspect yet, but it's obviously, it piques your curiosity of timing and all that stuff. Joe Ahrens. You know, she says, hey, I saw a guy wearing a mask come walking through the parking lot, get into a white pickup. Male went to the truck, put something in the back seat, and then drove away. And there was something else that made Angela Davis suspicious of this masked man. When he drove away, she noticed that his license plate number was completely obscured by snow on his rear bumper. But it hadn't snowed for quite a while, and it just seemed odd to her. Eventually, we have agents and investigators from NMPD start going along collecting video from different locations on Memorial Highway. And there are several businesses along Memorial Highway, otherwise known as the Strip. Agents and officers hit them all. They went to Midway Lane's Bowling Alley, which is within sight of Indigo Signs and RJR. They hit Bill Barth Ford and others. Finally, they got to Big O Tires, where they talked to Ben Zachmeyer. They asked to see Big O Tires surveillance video, and Ben says, sure, and they all take a look. One camera at Big O faced the strip in the direction of McDonald's, and sure enough, not only did they find video from that morning of a masked man walking from Big O Tires to McDonald's when Angela Davis saw him, they also found him earlier in the morning walking from McDonald's to Big O Tires and then around behind the Big O Tires facility. He was wearing a ski mask and dark clothing. The investigators packed up to leave and thanked Ben Zachmeyer for his assistance. But, as it turns out, it wouldn't be the last time they heard from him, or the last time they would thank him. Other businesses, like Bill Barth Ford and Midway Lane's Bowling Alley and others, also caught this mysterious man on their surveillance video. Pat Haug and Joe Ahrens again. As, as we get more and more video, we realize that he walks down Memorial. So now, what we've done is now we've gone from RGR to Indigo to McDonald's, and we're able to see that all the way down Memorial Highway and follow that suspect walking and then to that pickup in McDonald's. Leaves McDonald's and ultimately goes kind of across the road into that um, car dealership lot or whatever. And they have some video in there, so obviously we grab that video. We start collecting video and get some decent images of our suspect pickup. Those first images of the suspect's truck were at best decent, 
but not great ones. Still, these initial images will be used to send out the first of two so-called BOLOs, BOLO standing for Be on the Lookout for, sent statewide to all enforcement agencies. We know that he leaves McDonald's and we know he goes into that lot and turns around. Now we got to figure out where does he go from there. We know there's a couple directions he can go. Can he head towards Bismarck? Can head towards Main Street? He can take third take Third Street or he can take Bisman Avenue. And so we had to figure that out. So then we realized he goes to Main on Memorial. Now we got to figure out where does he go on Main? Does he go right or does he go left or does he go straight? We tracked that vehicle on video from Memorial Highway all the way down Main Street in Mandan on several business um, surveillance systems. If someone is heading west on Main Street in Mandan, North Dakota, and they want to leave Mandan, North Dakota by car, for example, if they have just committed a very serious crime and want to avoid jail, well, they've got some options. They could take a right and head north a few blocks and jump on Interstate 94. Of course, that nudges them up very close to the very place they're trying to avoid, because the Mandan Police Department and Morton County Sheriff's offices are downtown in that area, and it's highly likely you'll pass a police cruiser. Maybe best to avoid the police department and the state's attorney's office and the courthouse and the county jail. But if they do risk it and they head north a few blocks to I-94, depending on which direction they wanted to go on that interstate, east or west, they could maybe drive all the way to Billings, Montana, and there merge onto I-90 and truck along all the way to Seattle, Washington. Or they might feel a hankering to travel east on I-94, in which case they could cruise all the way to Port Huron, Michigan, then head north into Canada and a different jurisdiction. And there are other options to get out of downtown Mandan. At the west end of Maine, they could drive south on Highway 6 down to Selfridge, North Dakota, or maybe beyond Selfridge to South Dakota. Why not keep going to Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, or Texas, maybe even Mexico? But there is another option out of downtown Mandan. In fact, another way to get to I-94 without having to drive so close to the courthouse and the jail. And all one would have to do is nothing. Just keep driving west on Maine. Long before Interstate 94 was constructed, there was Highway 10. It's the old highway. It was just a dirt trail back in the early 1900s, built when that thing called the automobile was invented. Today it's a beautiful scenic byway, mostly paved from Mandan all the way to Dickinson, North Dakota. Today it's referred to as the Old Red Trail or Old 10. And it starts right there at the west end of Maine in Mandan. One might stay on Old 10 all the way to Dickinson and catch I-94 there, but the first option to catch the interstate from Old 10 in a less police-saturated area would be about five miles out of town, where they could hang a right and drive up there by Flying J Truck Stop. Here are Mandan PD's Pat Haug and BCI's Joe Ahrens again. I think it was one of the BCI agents went out to the truck stop just to see if he took Old 10. Then we pick up that vehicle out west of Mandan, driving past the truck stop. Then we got to figure out, okay, did he get on the interstate or did he keep going north? We kind of lose him there for a while. You could go east on I-94, west on I-94, or north on Highway 25. 
east, west, or north. The area north of the truck stop is your typical wide-open North Dakota countryside. Up there are the town's center and Washburn, and ultimately 150 miles north is the country of Canada. East, west, or north. We've got agents of various types hitting small towns in and around the area, trying, look, trying to find video to see if he drove through. We get video of the suspect vehicle driving through center in North Dakota. We've got some good images of our suspect vehicle. We're able to send that out to other law enforcement agencies. We send out images telling them to be on the lookout. Mandan PD put out a second bolo with the photo of the pickup passing through center North Dakota. And this photo, the photo of the white pickup in center, was of much better quality than the previous ones. Sooner or later, someone was bound to recognize it. Joe Aarons again. You know, we go a couple more days where we don't have a suspect at all. But meanwhile, there was plenty to do. What we're doing is, is we have agents interviewing family members and every staff member at RJR trying to get any leads at all, and we're, we're not getting anything at all. There was a lot more to this investigation than just looking at security video. There were autopsies of the victims and crime lab forensic testing. I asked Joe Ahrens to walk us through the crime scene investigation when they first looked closer at each of the victims. And so for the last 10 minutes of this episode, Joe Ahrens will tell us what they discovered there inside RJR and also what the autopsies revealed about each of their injuries. As I noted at the top of this episode, this part contains graphic descriptions of violence, including details of specific fatal injuries. Listener discretion is strongly advised. You know, a scene that size, you got to have a system to what you're doing. And so we broke it up in the areas, you know, so it was basically we would go to one body, process the area around that body, then move from that body to the other, the next body. But also during that time, we also know that whoever our suspect is that did this had to get from one person to the next. So we're also processing that area in between the two bodies for any evidence. We started in the office area with um, I believe we started with William first, and he was in that office. So we started processing there first. Um, found again that William had numerous stab wounds to his chest area, um, well over 20. I mean, and they were all over in his upper chest. As we were looking closer, there was a baseball-type cap lying on the floor next to him. And one of our agents had looked at that and noticed a small hole in the side of the cap. And I remember him saying to me, this looks like he was like a bullet hole in the side of this hat. Um, but we had no indications of gunfire at that point, generally because most of the time, especially in a shop the size of RJR, most people nowadays, if they're going to use a gun, they use a semi-automatic that pull the trigger, it fires, then it ejects the shell casing out. Well, there were no shell casings on the floor anywhere. It would be very hard for someone to be shooting in a building like that and be able to then go around and pick up all of the shell casing, especially with just furniture and whatnot. These casings hit the ground and they, it's like a football almost. I mean, they're not in the shape of a football, but I mean, they hit and they bounce and they roll and it's, you just wouldn't be able to keep track of all of them. 
So, and we had been told that these people had been stabbed. Then as we were examining William first, we noticed that hole in the side of the cap. And then as you look down, imagining William wearing that cap, and we saw a bullet hole or what appeared to be a bullet hole in the side of his head. You know, he also had one in his chest, but when you have that many stab wounds, stab wounds in a bullet hole don't always look that much different. I mean, once you actually see it, then you you can spot it. But when you're just looking and you have no reason to believe that there was a gunshot wound to his chest, you might not pick up on that right away. But then as we were, after we saw that, then we started looking and then we also and saw he had a gunshot wound, wound right to the center of his chest. Then we noticed on both of his arms, on his forearms, he had passed through bullet wounds in both arms through the forearms and almost essentially in line with each other in both forearms. So what that was telling us is that at some point he must have been trying to protect himself. Yeah, he could have had his arms together or crossed. Um, hard to say exactly how his arms would have been positioned for certain, but you know, so we take photos and document all of this. And then we have eventually the coroner comes to the scene and they even do a further exam. They move the body. So when the coroner starts moving, the body of William notices that there's a bullet hole in William's right shoulder. And then when he moves his arms, the bullet that went through his arms had been embedded in the shirt and fell out onto the floor. So when you looked at William, he had, I believe... Once it, everything was all said and done and later found out at autopsy, William had, I believe, 28 stab wounds to the chest area. He had a bullet wound to the, I believe it was the left side of the head. Yes, it was the left side of the head. He had a bullet wound to the center of his chest. He had a bullet wound in his right shoulder. And then he had um, bullet wounds through both forearms that passed all the way through. Now, the medical examiner, when you have injuries like that to the forearms, he can't say that it was all caused by one bullet. So when you get a final report, it says between four and eight gunshot wounds. We believe it's four from everything we saw, and he did too, but he can't say that. So he's got to be a little bit more broad on it. Then. Because one bullet could have caused two of those. Yep. One bullet could have went through one forearm and in through into the other one and through that one also. After we were done examining William and taking photographs of his injuries and documenting all of that, we moved on to Lois, who was again in the women's bathroom, partially in the bathroom. Her upper body was inside the bathroom. Her lower body, her legs were out into the office area. So she was lying right in the doorway. She had a lot of stab wounds to her chest area. And that was hard at first to see because of she was wearing a bra. And those stab wounds were right through the bra. A lot of them were. Um, so you couldn't really see them that well until her bra was removed. And then you could see the stab wounds that went through the... She was wearing a black bra. And so it was hard to see. But you could just see the material. There were some cuts in it. Um, and then she had some stab wounds to her face area and also to then she had some deep cuts on both sides of her neck then we end up seeing a bullet wound also on her and when she was rolled over onto her back once the coroner came because again that after we had done our examination the coroner comes we roll lois on her back and a bullet falls out of her, her shirt and onto the floor so 
and there's a bullet wound, an exit wound in her back. There's also several stab wounds in her back also. So we know at some point too, Lois was trying to get away because he was able to stab her in the back, shoot her in the front and stab her in the front. And then there's, there's a lot of blood in the bathroom draining or running away from Lois. Um, notice Lois has her, her clothing is saturated in blood. We notice that Lois's eyeglasses had fallen off and were lying on the floor next to her out in the office area. When you looked at her neck, those were extremely deep cuts to both sides of her neck, not even just one on both sides of her neck. There were deep cuts and then there was a little bit right in the center of her neck that hadn't been cut. Later on, an autopsy is done and they can do even further examination. And the one thing about when they do examinations and do the autopsy is they clean the body off. In total, Lois had 48 stab wounds, then cutting wounds to her face and neck area. So, I mean, even more than William and William had, we believed had, I mean, what, 28, that's a lot. Uh, when you went out into the shop, we had Adam Fuhr who we examined. And what we found with Adam was there was a large pool of blood next to his body. Adam was, was fully clothed at the time. Medical staff hadn't removed his clothing at all to examine his injuries. Um, he was obviously deceased when they found him. So Adam, once we started examining, Adam found that he had 11 stab wounds or a lot of stab wounds to the upper chest and neck area. Adam also had some gunshot wounds. I believe Adam had, if I'm recalling right, I believe five gunshot wounds to him also um, to the chest area. Then at an autopsy, just found several stab wounds in that upper chest area and the neck area, the side of the neck going kind of downward. And then he also had some stab wounds, if I remember correctly, to his back. So he didn't have as many stab wounds as William and Lois, but um, he had several also. Then we went to Robert, and Robert was a little bit different in that it, it appeared that there had been a struggle with Robert. That Yep, you could see that. Um, so what we noticed with Robert was Robert didn't have any bullet wounds. So Robert was never shot. He was just stabbed. Um, Robert had a lot of deep cuts to his face area, and then he had stab wounds to his chest. Other thing we noticed with Robert that told us that there was a fight was Robert had cuts to his hands, to his fingers, the inside of his fingers, which are what we would call defensive wounds. Robert is grabbing or using his hands to block the knife attack or grabbing at the knife and it it's cutting his hands too at the same time. Um, one of the things that was odd about Robert was that Robert had a wristwatch and it was in his hand. It wasn't on his wrist anymore. It was in his fingers. We never were able to explain exactly why that was, but we, we don't know. I mean, it's all speculation as to why that would be. Around Robert too, there was spilled coffee and some other things on the floor that made it appear that Maybe Robert had put up a fight with whoever this suspect was. Autopsy was done on Robert. Robert had 11 stab wounds and 11 cutting wounds to his face area. A lot of these, especially to the face, the cutting wounds were, were deep. They were deep. And the medical examiner 
when stated, even though they were just cuts to the face, they were potentially fatal, not immediately fatal, but that they could have been fatal after some time. Still yet to come in future episodes of The Mandan Murders. Talking to him when I was at his chiropractor business, he always said he wasn't a morning person, so I did it right away in the morning thinking he wasn't going to be up. At which point, Robert came up, we stood on his steps and spoke to him. Took pictures of it here. Um, It was parked right there in front of his house. You have to choose to live life the way that they would have wanted you to. My mom's side of the bed, she had like her pajamas like nicely folded and put on her nightstand. And then like my dad's side just had like his pajamas on the floor and like his water from the night before. Look out the window, Adam's here. (laughs) And then it's like, and then then it was time to pick on his sister and... Code of Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. To see photographs, documents, video, and more about this season, head over to inforum.com slash mandanmurders. And don't miss the awesome Dakota Spotlight Facebook group. To join, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Dakota Spotlight. Once again, thank you so much for listening to Dakota Spotlight. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.